0: My name's Rob Howes. This is the SLAS Discovery Podcast. Welcome to the SLAS Discovery Author Insights Podcast. So today I'm joined by marie Claire Peekman from Pfizer and Grote in Groton, Connecticut. We're going to discuss her recent paper in this SLAS Discovery special issue on hit discovery me- methodology with guest editors Mark Wigglesworth and Peter Hodder. So the is entitled Selecting Approaches for Hit Identification and Increasing Options by Building the Efficient Discovery of Actionable Chemical Matter from DNA-Encoded Libraries. So Marie-Claire, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Now, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Can you describe affinity-based screens and especially DNA-encoded libraries?
1: Absolutely, I'd be happy to. So for affinity selection mass spectrometry, or ASMS, there are probably a few different methods that can be used, but they all tend to rely on the same basic principle. So we start by incubating the compound libraries. Often that's more than two and a half thousand compounds at, at one time with the protein that we're interested in. And then we subsequently want to isolate the target along with the bound compound. And that might be using techniques like either online filtration, centrifugation, or size exclusion. We typically use a size exclusion chromatography column and then we follow that with a heated um, liquid chromatography set to release the compounds. Um, and then we use the accurate mass analysis to actually identify the small molecules that were present in the target. So we typically screen about one million compounds and sometimes up to four million compounds in our in our collection. Um, And one of the advantages that we've really found for ASMS is that that mass spec readout specifically hunts for the compounds that we expected to be present because they were in that initial well. And so the readout is really therefore unaffected by some of the side products or the degraded products that might be present in the well. Um, From a DNA encoded library perspective, that's really a way that we have found to generate and screen billions of compounds at the same time. And that library is slightly different. It's generated by a split and pool approach to chemistry. So we take a, a DNA tag or a barcode and we ligate that onto a DNA headpiece. And then subsequently a new monomer building block that's represented by that tag is incorporated on the other end. And that happens really over multiple rounds. So we grow the small molecule through chemistry reactions so that in the end, there's a specific DNA sequence that identifies each of the building blocks in that final small molecule. And a DNA screen, or as we call it, a selection, they're they're running at single small epindole tubes. Uh, The protein of interest can often be immobilized, for example, on a magnetic bead through a tag like biotin and then it's incubated with the library. The unbound molecules are washed away, and in a similar way, the compounds that are bound to the molecules on the beads are released by heating. And then we send them, instead of a mass spec analysis, they're sent for sequencing of their DNA tags. So in the sort of simplest version of it, our aim is to then identify the small molecule hits from those DNA tags, resynthesize them off DNA, and then hopefully test them in a functional assay to demonstrate their activity against the target that we're interested in.
0: Okay, thanks. That that's
1: good. Summarize them both.
0: <laughs> Man, that's great, that's really interesting. I, it's interesting that you mentioned you, you typically screen anywhere between one and four million compounds, yet you're doing it on a small Eppendorf uh, tube scale. You know, that, those sort of scales are similar to a traditional HTS. So, you know, what do you think are the benefits of a DNA encoded library screen versus something like a classical HTS screen?
1: yeah and so just to clarify a little bit that asms screens that we run they still typically use a, a well-based format and they're running up to about one to four billion compounds gelic libraries as i think we're, we may get into talking about a little more, bit more can be many orders of magnitude larger um so if you're sort of thinking about um the benefits of them both i think there's, there's a number of different factors that we can consider um and the first really is speed so it, generally taking us about four to six months from, from reagent ready to on DNA confirmation data. Um, and that coupled with the low protein requirements and, and the relative ease of development for those assays can make it much faster than a, a large file high throughput screen to run. Now the caveat there is that um, the protein still needs to be a very high quality in, in order to use it. And it may take some work up front to actually really titrate those active binding sites and to validate that known compound still compound binding still occurs, particularly if you have immobilized that protein on a bead. Um, and ultimately, of course, there is going to be the need for some downstream assay to confirm that of DNA functional activity. So you still have to sort of invest that time upfront in order in order to build um, some of the downstream assays. So the second benefit really of DNA encoded library screening is the low cost in comparison to a large HTS file. So we are talking in the order of about tens of thousands of dollars for a Dell selection. Um, depending on how many conditions that you run in parallel and how many compounds you might synthesize, um, you might select for resynthesis. Whereas is that compared to upwards of $500,000 for a large compound um, file? Um, I think an, another benefit along those lines, the size of the DNA encoded library can, can provide a real key benefit. So back to the point we were making, even a small Dell library will approximate the size of our full corporate high throughput screening collection and a large pool of Dell libraries can be many orders of magnitude higher. Um, I think there's some debate um, across the industry as to how diverse the chemical space those libraries cover, but I think it's pretty much agreed upon that whatever area of chemical space those Dell libraries are designed in, those areas are indisputably more densely populated. But I think to me the sort of key advantage over high throughput screening that really takes us beyond the logistics and beyond the library size is that ability to run many conditions in parallel so for example we can run dell selections with different protein concentrations with and without known binders for different sites with and without different protein partners that they might um, complex with Um, we're often considering different active site mutations or different selectivity targets all running in parallel and with some downstream sort of computational analysis, um, that approach can reveal m- many insights into the binding mode of the hits right up front in the original dataset.
0: Now I can see that there's lots of advantages there. Any problems?
1: Uh, yes, well, I guess obviously the first answer is, <laughs> is that it's purely a binding-based platform. So we really, we can't use it for a functional readout. I think what we've experienced is the second downside is that while follow-up from a high throughput screening hit can be very rapid because that often just requires reordering from the organizational sample bank, the Dell follow-up requires re-synthesis of that binder off DNA. And we have really found that provides a significant activation hurdle for teams to engage. And we really work to try and reduce that barrier by binding, by building in a better validation of those binders. what might not be immediately obvious for those who are not so familiar with Dell is that each of those DNA tags actually includes all the products from a specific, chemical, a specific chemical route with specific monomers. So any side products and truncated products will carry the same DNA tag. And so what we've really tried to do is insert an intermediate step of true binder identification. Um, and that's been really important to us to increase the percentage of successful binders that we then synthesize off DNA. Um, I would say a final challenge is that the data analysis and the identification of the hits takes some computational power and expertise. Um, And it's not really possible therefore, for all of our chemists across the organization to simply roll up their sleeves and mine the data personally, which as you probably know, is something they all really like to be able to do. Um, And that's definitely something we've had to incorporate into the, the way we run the screen.
0: No, I think that's a that's a really good summary of definitely some of the issues I think people see with them. But it certainly sounds like it's a a different approach to doing a wide variety type screen. So, you know, from your experience in, in your organization, when when would you typically use either a more traditional HTS or something like an affinity based screen?
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good question. It's um, something we think about a lot. We generally use a classical HTS, obviously, for a phenotypic approach, um, and something that requires a cell based readout to identify the desired pharmacology that we're looking for, particularly if we really want to cover multiple mechanisms or include indirect modes of action. Um, often we'll run a high throughput screen in parallel with other approaches if we have high confidence in a target that the research units want to invest in. And particularly if it's um, a known target class for which we're likely to have compounds in our corporate file, um, or those precedents uh, for screening success. And particularly if there's, um, you know, significant competitive um, nature to the landscape. A functional high throughput screen can also overcome challenges with targets that might be hard to purify um, in, as full length protein. Um, or targets that just might simply not be compatible when they are purified with the high solvent load or the high protein requirements that are required for asms Um, when thinking about asms i think that really provides an alternative approach um, for direct binders when we can purify the protein um, particularly when we're keen to expose it to the chemical space that our corporate collection represents they can be faster to prosecute um, and sometimes we've actually used them to provide a quick um, overall assessment for drug ability of a target that we're interested in. And I think one of the other things to remember is that the ASMF will pick up all binders uh, at, at different sites on the protein, so including orthosteric and allosteric sites, and they're not biased by a specific functional site binding or activity-based readout, that you might come across with some of the, the high throughput approaches that we take. So some of those factors are obviously also applicable to the Dell space, um, but they just address a different chemical space to to our corporate collection. Um, And we've tried to highlight some of these considerations in the manuscript. By uh, listing the questions that we use to help us think about or choose between some of the different HIT ID approaches. So, they will include some of these questions, for example, questions of the landscape, the confidence in the target, and the precedence for screening, um, and how competitive that field is. They really also include questions around the mechanism of action that we're particularly looking for and also the target for. Um, and by that, I mean, what kind of protein is it? Is it a, a membrane-bound protein, for example? Can we purify it alone? Um, can we purify it and, and re- reconstitute a physiologically relevant complex? Um, and is it compatible with some of those affinity screening conditions? So those are some of the things I think that we consider when we're trying to make that selection.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting that it's a very quick way to show drugability or, like you say, you can actually start to probe specific pockets of a target protein, something which might be quite difficult with a functional assay, because it might bias you towards a substrate pocket rather than a, you know, enzyme, another part of the enzyme either an allosteric site or, you know, ATP binding site, for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, really interesting. So with the DAL libraries, how do people typically use those within HIT discovery?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question. Some companies are actually running a Dell screen every time they run an HTS, really to provide them with alternate chemical matter. And um, they've done a really nice job at trying to integrate the data across the two platforms. And I would agree that the the binding screens and the functional screens are generally very complementary whenever that's possible. Um, I think one of the things that's really intriguing for us is when does an ASMS versus a Dell screen make sense? Um, and is there an advantage to one over the other? We've definitely seen some targets that find hits in an ASMS screen, but not in the Dell, and vice versa. Um, and it's really not yet really clear to us why that's the case. Um, each of those screens have somewhat different conditions. So um, perhaps the protein's in a slightly different conformation, or maybe it's just a real true reflection of those different chemical libraries. Um, we tend to use DELs when full-length protein is available, especially when it's limited in quality. Because uh, in quantity, I'm sorry, it's not quality. Um, because the DELs use definitely the, the minimum amount of protein of any of the sort of hit identification platforms that we have, um, and we particularly use DELs when binders are acceptable to the team. Um, and perhaps we've, we run it, in all honesty, when there's less confidence in the target and we don't want to invest in a, a long and expensive hit HTS campaign. Um, On the other hand, I would say that we don't want to throw only the hardest targets at that platform. It's a surefire way to reduce its impact, and I'm sure we've all had experiences of doing that. Um, And as I mentioned before, when the target is in a really highly competitive space, we might run a DAO in in parallel with other hit uh, finding approaches such as NHTS to generate as much lead matter as swiftly as possible.
0: Yeah, I think there's some really interesting pieces that you raised there. I think that those benefits around speed and the low cost really, really do make you think, actually, let's just run this on a target that we may don't have a lot of confidence. But you're right to raise that point around don't throw all the hard projects at a platform like this. It's really that's right, especially them. when
1: it's, it's early and you're trying to build confidence in your organisation about a new platform that you're bringing on board. As I say, we were a little bit later into this space than, than some other organisations. So we definitely had to go through that process of building confidence across the organisation and trying to demonstrate the value of what we could get out.
0: I think that's a really interesting point you raise. I think many organisations see this, that a, a new technology comes along people want it to solve a problem they've not been able to solve otherwise and that often is too high a hurdle for that technology in its infancy yep. it might be able to do it later yep. it, it sounds yep. like a common a common error that many of us make
1: yep and we did it with fragment binding you know, decades ago
0: <laughs> we, we will learn at some point <laughs> So talking about, yeah, so, sorry, just carrying on about the Dell library. So you know, what are the current limitations, in your opinion, about the use of Dell libraries?
1: Yeah, I would say we're still trying to increase the percentage of our portfolio for which it's really valuable. Um, we don't really have well-established methods yet for membrane-bound proteins um, or for whole cells or for DNA or RNA binding proteins um, that may actually bind to the DNA tag itself. Um, There are definitely examples in the literature of where these have been successful, but I would just say we don't have as much experience of those yet, and we definitely internally have no examples of project leads that um, have been driven from those types of selections. I would say, you know, just similar to a, a classical HTS campaign, there are some targets that just don't yield any hits, or the hits they do yield are of no interest to the team whatsoever. And we, as I said before, we don't always have a good understanding of why that's the case at the moment. Um, is it the quality of the protein? Is it the conditions of the selection? Um, or is it the library? Um, and, and we're still trying to figure that out. Um, I, I'd say we're also really still feeling this task of trying to make follow up easier for the project teams. By giving them greater confidence in the hit before they have to invest chemistry. Um, And some of the things we're thinking about for the future might include things like cleavable linkers um, that might allow us uh, using those small scale on DNA resynthesis um, pools to um, actually test products um, in a functional assay where otherwise the tag might pose somewhat of a challenge. So um, I think we're it's it, certainly internally at Pfizer at a place where we sort of see where the limitations are and we're uh, investing some of our efforts to try and overcome them in multiple areas.
0: It's a good overview of, of those affinity-based methods, ASMS and uh, Dell. Obviously, most people tend to use those as an alternative to a classical HTS. So, you know, in your opinion, what makes a successful classical HTS?
1: That's a really loaded question. <laughs> Um, okay, so <laughs> there's so much you could unpack in that. Okay, so let's start um, by defining success. I think lots of people um, have different opinions on this. From a, a very technical perspective, you might consider success just being the delivery of confirmed hits. Um, however, at the project team level, where that value is often determined in terms of chemistry, it, it's more likely to be measured, for example, by the number of confirmed series that that we take on to do some um, lead optimization or lead development. we say at the corporate level or the company level, the, the benchmark is often something that you would, um, or success is often really described through retrospective analysis as, as a delivery of a clinical candidate. Um, and so as we're planning our HIT ID campaigns or the strategies for different projects, we're really trying to best balance the calculated risks, right? And really calculate the risks that we're taking on board. So as we're thinking of preparing for a classical hts we tend to think of the the likelihood of success in terms of the biology the chemistry aspects and also the screening aspects and ideally i'd like to be confident on at least two of those fronts um it really in order to warrant that investment in a large hts campaign so from a biology perspective what does that mean um well success from a biology perspective is really going to come from a target that truly drives the disease So as you're entering a campaign, you want to be asking questions like, what's the current level of confidence in rationale in the target? And is it on a positive trajectory in the team? Are we generating more data? Um, And will will we be likely to have um, more positive feeling about the target prior to screen initiation? So for example, if you've got um, a compelling case of causality with some insight into the directionality or the mechanism of action that you're looking for from human biology to data, That would be a really strong reason to proceed um, with with an HTS. From a chemistry perspective, teams are are often asking, what's the absolute chemical need that we have for a program? Um, A well-precedented target class, um, such as kinases, with a variety of non-HTS approaches that are viable, um, or a target that might already have some suitable chemical leads in the literature would probably um, be less valuable um, to run uh, as an HTS. Uh, or make the output less less useful to the team. I think um, the chemistry doability approaches also play some part here. Um, is there a, a ligandable binding site present on the protein? And you know what chemical space do, can we really make accessible to that target in the screen? Um, for for example, anything that is already structurally enabled, either directly or via um, homology modelling we would probably likely start with a virtual screen before launching an HTS. Um, And then finally, the technical doability. And and really, I I always put this last because to me, the biology and the chemistry need really drive the desire for the screen. Um, But in the end, sort of the technical doability piece almost has the right to veto. Um, What's the degree of precedence for that screening technology to deliver confirmed hits for the target class? Right, GPCRs would be a pretty good bet, I think you would agree, for delivering hits using a classical HTS approach. But if you're looking for something like activators of non-kinase enzymes, I think that's a a bit more of an adventure from the start. Um, I would say one thing to layer on top of these elements that it's worth remembering is that timing is really important and that to me adds another risk factor. Um, To really achieve that organisational level of success, and the ultimate clinical candidate, we found it's really important um, to run the screen at the right point of the project lifecycle. And we've all done it. We've run screens too early um, and risk the, the programmer tritting because confidence and rationale is not there. You know, the, the biology data are not there. Um, but equally, you don't want to run a project too late when the chemistry team already have matter that they're working on and that's all they do nanomolar potency. And you're pulling micromolar hits out of the HTS that, that they're not even going to look at. So I think that um, timing, getting that right um, by partnering closely with the project team is really important.
0: Yeah, thank you. There's some really interesting points you raised there. I, th- I actually think the last one is super important around timing. You know, a an HTS is a lot of investment with a lot of reward, but it does take time to get there, whereas some of the affinity methods that you were talking about, especially something like an ASMS, you, they mm-hmm. can be done very quickly. and certainly give you a start into a project.
1: Yeah. Okay,
0: Okay, so you've done your screen, you've done your hit ID approaches, you get output. How? I mean, can you talk about some of the methods that you you've been developing over at Pfizer to improve the outputs from your different hit ID strategies?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered some of them in terms of trying to increase the use of these affinity-based platforms, um, including the ASMS and the Dell, as some of our primary strategies. And exactly as you say, they really invested in these for their speed and the the low resource commitments relative to the classical HTS. Um, Whereas they both take a lot of investment, really, to establish, once they're built, they're really, as you say, operating those projects at a much lower cost of screen. I think there's also added value with these if we can incorporate the sampling of the alternative protein conformations or the activation states. That's definitely a place I would like to see us going more, um, comparing active versus inactive conformations with and without binding partners, with and without active site ligands, because I think that is giving us the opportunity to address um, the desired mechanisms of action much more rapidly with some of the early, early screen readouts. Um, Over the years, we've also incorporated and I'm sure many other people have the standard compound QC workflows to make sure that we're um, really focusing on valid hits downstream. Um, And we've really tried to learn from our mistakes and improve our um, counter screening and and triage efforts. And actually, we recently published a a paper on that from a phenotypic perspective. where we incorporated a lot of learnings, so we're really trying to eliminate those false positives as fast as possible and find ways to drill down um, into the most promising series. Um, as I said, as we've been talking about, we've more recently invested in, in Dell. The platform has also given us an opportunity to build an entirely new screening library that, to some extent, is unbiased with respect to some of our previous um, therapeutic focus areas. And I think there's strategy of having the asms and the dell screens really with relatively non overlapping libraries makes those two platforms very complementary in terms of, of, of the chemical space that they interrogate so we've definitely seen both of those platforms deliver hits for projects um, where other hit id techniques have failed um, as well as having their their share of difficult targets where neither neither technique can deliver um, and for those targets definitely a functional hts would, would be a clear path forward. I hope that answers some of that question.
0: It does, thank you. Uh, in the paper, you talk about a method called Barley.
1: So could you describe yeah. that in more detail? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I really have to uh, credit Tim Boley and some of the other authors on the paper for this work. Um, so Bali or Barley, um, stands for bead-assisted ligand isolation. And it's basically a binding method that um, really embodies the experimental strategy of the DEL selection, but it uses an intrinsic fluorescence or a quantitative mass spec readout. So in a nutshell, um, it's, it's a binding experiment. The protein and the compounds are combined and they're allowed to reach equilibrium. And then after that, the binding reaction is partitioned into the bound and the unbound fractions using the affinity beads that we use for the DEL selection and that captures the protein. So to try to understand where the bindings occurred, we analyze how much of the compound was captured by the beads versus how much was left in the solution. And in our hands, it appears to obey many of the first principles of biochemistry. So for example, binding stoichiometry, affinity-driven partitioning, conservation of mass. So we've been using this approach to ask multiple different questions. Um, For example, we've used it to provide a yes-no readout on binding events. We've used it to give us a little bit more information about competition at a known binding site. Um, and we also use it to do binding site titrations before we um, move into a cell selection. So if you, if you look at the protocols as we described it in the manuscript and dig into it in a little more detail, you'll notice that it doesn't have any washing steps. Um, and that was pretty important to us because it really um, takes out any of the kinetic bias in the technique. And so for folks who, who might be listening who have a little bit less of practical experience with the ASMS technology, um, the most common uh, method that we use in the industry uses a 2D um, LCMS readout that includes the size exclusion chromatography to separate the bound and the unbound fractions of the compound. And that chromatography really has a requirement for modest to slow dissociation kinetics. And so it tends to bias against those compounds that have the fast dissociation kinetics. Um, and so we were really Focusing on some of this as we were trying to build this confidence in a platform across the, the organization, we really observed that this sort of added to the quantitativeness that we observed um, and we felt it gave us a much better chance of confirming some of those low affinity Dell hits, which might have the fastest dissociation kinetics. Great, thank, really you,
0: nice. for, thank just, you. Yeah, no, thank you for describing that it's really interesting because it's a. You're right. It's really key to actually highlight that bit around having no wash steps. Um, it really does. Yeah, that's where you get into the practicalities of doing this type of technology.
1: Yep.
0: So. Overall, how have you improved the output from your DNA encoded libraries?
1: Yeah, thanks. That's um, really where we're trying to go. We've, to be honest, we really struggled a bit in our uh, initial exploration of the technology, and that was really for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, I think it's included uh, inadequately characterizing the protein reagent or actually proceeding to screen when the characterization results were marginal. And people have a tendency to do that because it's a sort of take it or leave it approach. It's fast, it's relatively cheap. We'll just take what we get out of it. But we found it really was not building confidence in the platform if we were, more, if we were frequently running things through the technique and, and not getting anything out. When we did find um, hit, Dell hits early on, we often found that they had a very poor balance of drug-like properties and they were very unpopular as starting points for the development. Um, and then I would say another big hurdle that we experienced was that we had a really low confirmation rate um, initially for the hits that we selected for follow-up. So we really worked on addressing all of those. Um, so to address that first problem of, of protein quality, we really spend more time upfront um, investing in um, the purified protein, ensuring that um, it still possesses the ability to enrich known ligands for RNA, um, and also to ensure that it's really mostly folded appropriately and, and retains those binding sites. To really overcome some of the challenges about the starting point for um, lead development and the chemical um, quality. We started to apply the multi-parameter optimization scoring, which I think is you know, a pretty common approach in, in other HIT ID t- um, platforms to um, move compounds forward into optimization. And we found that really helps us identify binders with better um, drug-like properties. And it's definitely improved those initial reactions from project team chemists with the hits. Um, The most significant hurdle I mentioned we had to overcome was that low confirmation rate from the screen, and that's something that we spend a bit of time talking about in the manuscript. We did some basic robustness assessments of the protocol, which weren't really out in the literature, to increase our confidence in, in that selection data. And that really led us to focus on the chemistry challenge that comes along with the technology, and that's namely that despite your best efforts in synthesis, those DNA tags, don't necessarily faithfully predict that originally designed chemical structure. So often, sometimes more than 30% of the time, the true binder to the target is a side product that's come from um, library synthesis. um, And it's not actually the designed compound. So to overcome this, we uh, adopted that a previously described method of using on DNA resynthesis so that we could quickly remake Um, the candidate hits in a a non-combinatorial approach, essentially reproducing what molecules were likely to be attached to that DNA barcode. And then we applied the Bali platform that we just talked about to try and actually identify the true nature of the binder that was in that pot um, to give the chemistry team some better information um, that they can use to guide some of their their recent successors. So it's definitely a work in progress, but All in all, I would say I'm really excited about the the DNA encoded libraries as a new platform in our HIT ID toolbox. And I think the fun here comes in trying to work out what's the best tool for the job um, and and which approach or or which combination of approaches is is really gonna make the the biggest difference for the project team and for patients in the future.
0: Uh, Thank you. I think that I totally agree with that sentiment. I think it's all about having different type, different strategies to be able to do the right thing for the right project. And I think you've done a really great discussion and explanation around some of these affinity-based methods. So thank you. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I would love to hear anybody's feedback if um, anybody would like to engage in further conversation. I'm sure everybody has their um, own perspective on some of these things and their own experiences.
0: Yeah, well, they can certainly get in contact with you through, um, through the paper. And I guess just to highlight that this Uh, special issue is going to be highlighted at the upcoming SLAS 2021 conference coming up later this month.
1: I will be in attendance. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it very much.